Chapter One of One Commonplace Day. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. One Commonplace Day by Pansy. Chapter One From Midnight to Sunrise. The great town clock, whose face showed in the moonlight from the tower of the church on the square, told twelve times, and a new day was born. To all appearances it was exactly like other days that had preceded it. The streets were quiet, save for a comparatively few late walkers, who went swiftly about their business, making no stir and exciting no comment. The houses were for the most part dark and quiet, for this was a quiet town, which as a rule hushed itself early for the night. It is true that behind and above certain screened doors the light glowed brightly, but the owners took care not to let outsiders see what was going on behind the screens. From here and there a house streamed the lights from many windows, and the laughter and chatter of guests sounded on the quiet air, and there were certain windows where the night lamp of anxious watcher burned dimly, but for the most part the town was asleep. Upstairs, in a back room, whose light could not be seen at all from the streets, a lamp was burning dimly, not because somebody had turned it low and shaded it, but because it had turned itself low for want of oil to feed upon, and because of a badly crusted wick. Of course it smoked. Two people were in the room, one a young fellow with brown eyes and thick brown hair, through which he ran the fingers of one hand in an absent way, was sitting by the book-strewn table, bending over the open book which lay so that the dim rays of the dying lamp could best strike it. The other, a young fellow with blue eyes and curly hair, sat with his feet in the window and his hands in his pockets, watching first the moon and then the student. At last he spoke. "'I say, Ben, the clock has struck Thursday. You need not moon over that old book any longer.' We'll have to get to bed by moonlight as it is. That light is departing. I wish it would go bodily while it's about it. Faw, what a smell! If there is anything I hate, it's kerosene oil. The student did not even glance up, but turned a leaf of the big book with a smile as he said, You must have gas put in your house. I'm going to. Catch me blinking my eyes over smoky kerosene when I have a house of my own. It shall have all the modern improvements, and a great many that have not been discovered. Time enough for new ones before I build. The sentence closed with a slight laugh, and there was silence again for a few minutes. There, what did I tell you? Now see if you will stop. This exclamation was called forth by the circumstance of the light flickering unsteadily for a moment, and then going out altogether. The young man at the table closed his book, looked at his friend in the moonlight, and laughed. "'I should have had the facts all fixed in my mind in five minutes more,' he said. "'But there is no help for it now. I am sorry I used up all the light, old fellow.' "'The moon gives light enough for me, and smells better besides. Now that the soul of that thing has departed, it smells worse than before. I'll smash that lamp some day, see if I don't. Why do they always give the vile thing to us, do you suppose?' I should think it would do for Eames to trim his whiskers by, and tie a new style in his cravat. That is all he uses a lamp for. 
Look here, Ben, did you know it was after midnight? I heard you say that a new day was born. I wonder what it will do for us. Humph! Exactly what the other days have done. You'll keep your pen going scratch-scratch all day, and I'll fly around when the mails come in, and lounge between times, and yawn, and wish it were night. And in the course of time night will come, and you will pore over those books, and I will wait for you with exemplary patience, and growl at that same lamp, the smell of which garnishes my speech at this moment. And at last the thing will take pity on me and go out, earlier than it did to-night, I hope. And this day will be done. Time is kind of a mean thing. A hundred years from now, what difference will it make, I wonder? A good deal, according to the theories of some people. Lloyd, aren't you going on with your study? I don't believe I am. What's the use? I can't accomplish anything tugging away here all alone. It would take a century to get ready to work at that rate. We might as well both give up. I don't believe we'll ever, either of us, be doctors, and the sooner we settle down to the commonplace, the better it will be for us. You're blue tonight, his friend said quietly. When the sun shines again, your ambition will return. No, it won't. I'm tired of the sun, great red-faced fellow shining on all sorts of people in the same way. No discrimination about him. Why hasn't he penetration enough to discover that we are unusual fellows, and ought to have had a lift sunward years ago? There was no answer to make to this absurdity save a laugh. Meanwhile preparations for rest had gone forward rapidly, and as the two had worked hard all day, and were tired, beyond a few groans and sighs over the hardness and smallness of the pillows, talk was at an end, and the deep-toned breathing soon showed that part of the new day was to be spent in sleep. That red-faced sun was at his post at the usual hour the next morning, and was shining brightly when the two friends met on the street corner. Eben Bruce had been gone from the room ten minutes before his companion had opened his eyes, and this was therefore their first meeting for the day. "'There is something slightly different going to happen after all,' Lloyd said, speaking satirically. Have you received your invitation? What, to the picnic? You don't consider that sufficiently unusual to be ruled out from the commonplace, I hope. This town runs to picnics, you know. But we don't run to them very often, at least you don't. The uncommon part of it is that you are going. I am going? Am I the bearer of news? Haven't you heard of it? Good. I heard your superior officer remark, not half an hour ago, that he should send you off for an afternoon's holiday, since you hadn't been out of town this season. For himself, he considered picnics of all sorts a bore, and wouldn't be hired to go. He meant to take your place and send you, because, of course, a representative of the establishment must be there out of courtesy to the ladies. Now I call that an almost sublime exhibition of unselfishness on his part. I hope you will conduct yourself with becoming gratitude and humility when you are informed of the grace extended. The young man addressed felt his cheeks glow, and knew that he almost involuntarily curled his lip. The position of second bookkeeper was made very disagreeable to him because of the superior airs of the first bookkeeper. I shall not go, he answered haughtily, so the self-denial on his part is uncalled for. 
Oh, but I would. What is the use of standing in your own light in order to quench him? He won't quench worth a cent, and the woods are bright, and the coffee will be hot, and the cream cold, and the ladies irresistible, in spite of Milligan's airs. I should by all means go. Are you to go? Not I. The United States mail comes in with all the exasperating regularity of the sun, without the slightest regard to picnics or holidays, and I have no self-abnegating superior, who, with tears in his eyes, will put his hands on my shoulder and say, My dear boy, by all means go and be happy. I will do your work for you. Count your mercies, Eben. If you were a servant of our free and independent government, you would have none to count. What about this picnic, anyway? Who was taken with the disease this time? It is a sort of epidemic, as nearly as I understand. Struck a dozen or more at once. It is intended as a tribute to the guest at the Cleveland homestead. What, the lecturer? Aye, the man who has come here to rest and get away from people, and they get up a picnic to rest him. He paused here long enough to indulge in a hearty laugh but the gayest part of it is that the distinguished guest can't be present it seems he has planned to be several hundred miles from here by to-morrow evening to fulfil an appointment and must leave on the morning express so all they will have of him will be regrets on paper and joy in his heart no doubt still it will be an enjoyable affair i presume there is a very pleasant company and they go to the pleasantest place about here i think if you've never been to Crescent Falls, it will pay you to go, just for the sake of enjoying them. I wish I could go, and we would stroll off together and have a good time for once in our lives, unregaled by the odors of kerosene, or boiled lard, or any such thing. This reference to the close proximity of the room in their boarding-house, to the multiform odors of the kitchen, set them both into a laugh, and then they separated, Eben Bruce walking away confirmed in his resolve to take no holiday that was almost thrust upon him to serve the whim of a disagreeable fellow-worker. Besides, who wanted to go to a picnic? Meantime, on the side piazza of the Cleveland homestead, two gentlemen sat under the shade of a spreading elm. The younger of the two held in his hand a railway time-card, and looked up from its perusal to speak with a positive air. It's of no use, Durant, you can't do it. If that change of time had not come in day before yesterday, you would just make the connection at the N.Y. and P. crossing, but as it is, you would have to lie over there and wait for the midnight train, which you can get by taking the 7.20 from here in the evening. My friend, you are in for that picnic, and no help for it. I cannot in conscience say that you had to go this morning to make your train, for, besides not being true, those railroad fellows will all know it isn't, and that last, you know, is an unanswerable argument with a great many people in favor of honesty. But by this arrangement I cannot reach Venango in time for my appointment. That is true enough. You will have to telegraph that you have failed to make connection, and they must make the best of it. I am as sorry as possible. It is really my fault for not looking up the timetable before this late hour. I had no idea that they changed time so early in the season. But I have studied the matter now in all its bearings, and there is no possible way for you to reach the junction in time for the first up train. 
Mr. Durant's face was clouded. "'I don't like it,' said he, after a troubled silence, "'and I don't understand it. I thought this one of the most important of my appointments. The fact is, it took me half a day to plan so that I could give them one evening. And now to have it upset and a commonplace picnic put in its stead seems strange treatment for a soldier, doesn't it? I wanted to be about my master's business. I have no time for trifling. I am sorry, Mr. Cleveland said again, his face growing as grave as his friend's. I feel that the blame rests with me. I should have been more careful. And I am very sorry about this picnic, too. It was sprung upon me. I should have known better than to have dragged you into such a thing when you are tired out. Mr. Durant hastened to disclaim any intention of censuring his host. The blunder is my own, of course. You could not be expected to study timetables for your guests and tell them when to start, he said, smiling. I don't know what possessed me to be so indifferent. It is not like me. As for this picnic, of course it is a pleasant thought, intended in kindness, and I ought to be grateful. In fact, I am. Only it seems, well, a little trivial, you know, when I have such important business on hand. But after all, I may as well go and enjoy the woods, and make the best of it. Perhaps it will fit me the better for my autumn work. Who knows? Mr. Cleveland rose up from the discussion with a relieved air. Well, he said, I must say I am glad for the picnic's sake. Those people were going to be sadly disappointed to think that the lion of the occasion would not be there after all. One can be sorry and glad at the same time, it seems. I would not have had you miss your appointment and set those Venango people to groaning for a great deal. But, since it can't be helped, I suppose we have a right to be glad that their loss is a gain to us. I must go and let Miss Hannah Wainwright know that you are to be at the picnic. It may turn the scales with her. Who is Miss Hannah Wainwright? She is a very interesting and original character, who will bear studying. I will give you a chance to try it this afternoon, if she can be induced to go. She looks upon picnics somewhat as you do. But she is a staunch temperance woman, and believes in you has read all your published lectures, and quotes you to the infinite discomfiture of your and her opponents often. Now, Miss Hannah Wainwright was at this particular moment in her large, bright room upstairs, engaged in driving a hairpin through the neat wad of grey hair on the back of her head, and bending at the same moment over a book about three inches square, which was fastened open on her dressing bureau with a collar-box and a hair-brush. Her forehead was wrinkled, and her face wore an astonished, I might say disturbed, look. "'Well, I do say,' she said at last, speaking slowly and with evident perplexity in the tone. "'That's a verse, sure enough. It has enough in it to last a lifetime, instead of a day. Well, for the matter of that, it must last a lifetime. And that doesn't make it easier.' I don't know why I have never taken in that verse before. As many times as I have read it, too. It shows how like a machine being turned with a crank, a body can read. For I suppose if I have seen that verse once, I have forty times. The unruly hair was in order at last, and the small, neat linen collar pinned securely in place, 
and then miss hannah bent over the little book again and gave undivided attention to the words reading them aloud whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do do all to the glory of god daily food i should think it will take more than one day to digest that i must say i don't see how it is to be done or how it can be done more than that i don't know what people have been about it doesn't stand to reason that they have all been as stupid as i have and lived half a lifetime without noticing it at all and yet as true as i am hannah wainwright i don't know as i can think of one who is practising on it by this time her toilet was completed her windows thrown open to let in the sweet flower-scented air and she went slowly down the long wide old-fashioned stairs through the long wide old-fashioned hall and threw open the door of her quaintly furnished dining-room the table was neatly laid for one and glistened with china and shone with silver and was beautiful with choice fine drapery miss hannah's breakfast-table was always a picture pleasant to look at through the half-open door came a whiff of fragrant coffee and a hint of broiling steak there it is said miss hannah whether ye eat or drink how i should like to know to be sure it will strengthen me for my day's work i suppose to eat my steak and drink my coffee and i am thankful to god for the food to eat and the pleasant place to eat it in but how can i plan the day's work so as to match the directions she went over to the piazza door and set it open letting in a glow of sunlight and the breath of many flowers there was peter trundling his barrow down the pebbly path with its burden of dried leaves and castaway blossoms peter was a faithful workman but his pinched face this morning suddenly suggested to her the wonderment as to whether his eating and drinking could have anything to do with the glory of god she had never noticed before that he did not look well fed she called to him good morning peter have you had your breakfast this morning end of chapter one